This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thank you for joining us today for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is William Edmondson. Bill is Regents Professor of Law and Philosophy at Georgia State University in Atlanta. He works at the intersection of political philosophy and law and has helped to shape current discussions of political obligation, equality, Punishment, and the Duty to Obey the Law. His latest book is newly out in paperback with Cambridge University Press. It is titled John Rawls, Reticent Socialist. Now, John Rawls is easily the most celebrated and influential political philosopher of the 20th century, and his impact remains remarkably strong today. The central concepts with which his theory of justice begins are now components of the philosophical vernacular, the original position, the veil of ignorance, primary goods, the two principles of justice, especially the difference principle. These will all be well known to the majority of those listening to this podcast. Yet it's less commonly acknowledged that the apparatus that I've just referenced is but the beginning of his theory and ultimately not its central concern. Throughout his work, Rawls is attempting to address a fundamental philosophical question. Can a society committed to the freedom and equality of its citizens yet arrange social institutions in a way that reliably cultivates within the persons that are its citizens attitudes and dispositions that are required for social justice? In his book, Edmondson argues that Rawlsian justice calls for a socialist economic order. Could it be that America's premier political philosopher was a socialist? There's a lot to talk about. But let's begin with our guest. Hello, Bill. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Very well. Great. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I uh, was born and grew up in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, growing up in the 1950s and 60s. Um, it was an interesting place to, to grow up. Uh, my dad owned a toy store that um, uh, happened to be located near one of the uh, federal housing projects uh, occupied almost, ex well, exclusively by by uh, um, blacks. Uh, this was a very segregated city. And um, just hanging out at Dad's toy store, I got a view of society that was, uh, to me, kind of disturbing. I remember vividly uh, once... Um, uh, some black kids uh, being asked to leave the store. They just come in 
And um, I remember a look I was given by one of the kids, um, puzzling, why does this kid get to stay and why do I have to leave? Um, and as the 60s unfolded, uh, Birmingham was the center of uh, a great deal of, of tumult. And about the same time, I was uh, getting ready for uh, for college and uh, having to face uh, the question of uh, whether or not to take advantage of the student deferment available to those who uh, were fortunate enough to be able to go to college. Um, these things uh, I stayed with me and I think fed a continuing interest in matters of, of justice and the right ordering of society. Um, it wasn't, uh, I really, really can't say I was focused on philosophy uh, uh, until um, uh, I returned to, uh, to college after an interruption uh, occasioned by the draft um, and was trying to put together uh, my view of the world uh, at, uh, at a time when uh, things really seemed to be uh, quite unsettled and uh, worked on uh, philosophy of language, uh, uh, philosophical logic, things like that, and, but found myself drawn back into uh, uh, a political philosophy. One, one turning point, I guess, was uh, reading uh, um, the um, uh, concept of law by uh, H.L.A. Hart and, and um, got me to thinking about what law was. What was it about the law that, that, uh, that demanded uh, the respect that we we uh, much of the time, many of us think it, it deserves. Excellent. Um, so th the book uh, is uh, about John Rawls, um, somebody also uh, influenced by H.L.A. Hart, no doubt. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, I expect a lot of our listeners will will know Um you know, there's a lot that's been written about Rawls at this point. It's it's a it's a mountainous secondary literature, and it continues to grow. Um, um, I should note, though, that your book um, is among uh, the first um, that I'm aware of, at least, um, to attempt what we might think of as a synoptic interpretation of the work um, on a yeah. sort of. Uh, uh, on a standard sort of understanding of, of, of Rawls's work. There's the, the first book that's about justice. There's a second book. It's about legitimacy or justification, which is different from justice. And then there's a third book, which, um, is, uh, not fully baked, uh, <laughs> which is about human rights, um, of some kind and about global justice, but, um, not really. Uh, and, uh, even some of Rawls' students are very critical of that, that third book for having, uh, lost the plot as it were. Um, now, but your book is different. So your, your book aspires to see the, the, the Rawlsian work as a philosophical unity. Um, and I should say yours is the first book that I know of that takes um, uh, his later work, uh, which is uh, almost a posthumous work, um, which is called Justice is Fairness, a Restatement. You take the restatement as a culminating work 
rather than um, what I take it to be is a, sort of a more more common view of that work, that, that the restatement is a kind of loose summary or, as a colleague once put it, uh, theory of justice for the undergrads. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about sort of your approach to Rawls as a figure and um, and, and the aspiration to see the, 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 the political philosophy as, as a whole? Uh, yeah, I... Um first became aware of of Rawls um, in college. Uh, I was informed by one of uh, my teachers that there was this big book uh, by a man named John Rawls. And my uh, familiarity with him uh, was mostly, I guess, secondary through his his uh, his view of uh, civil disobedience. And I took a look at the book and read it. I I. I think I got to part three, but I was um, um, under underimpressed. Um, it has appeared to me that uh, Rawls's approach was um, a very conservative one that was simply not 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 to my to my uh, to my liking. Really, um, the, I um, was asked to cover for a colleague who had to be absent to conduct a reading group on political liberalism when it came out in 1993. And um, that book uh, did not impress me uh, either. And it was at this time that in conversations with colleagues, I I press the point that uh, Rawls's uh, 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 difference principle was uh, uh, essentially the same idea that was floated by the Reagan and Thatcher uh, 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 programs for raising all boats, uh, allowing uh, the the good things of an unequal society to trickle down to the less advantaged, and so. Um, my for a long time my view of of Rawls was was uh, not altogether positive um, it was only when I tried to teach uh, a, a a course on uh, theories of justice that I uh, looked at the uh, the restatement as a possible um, uh, possibly an accessible um, easy to read and follow uh, uh, account of a theory of justice that students, uh, graduate students and law students could take as a sort of a springboard for a wider discussion. It was only after reading the book that I realized this is not simply a, um, a, a dumbing down or a, a, a Cliff's Notes version of, of Rawls's view. This represents uh, some very major uh, uh, refinements and adjustments in his view, and it also is is evidently an attempt to uh, combine um, uh, uh, three decades of of work into a a synoptic and coherent uh, uh, scheme. And uh, the th- uh, two of the three um, uh, adjustments in the book were pretty clearly flagged right up front, um, one uh, uh, being that uh, uh, Rawls was uh, going to, uh, to combine uh, uh, the uh, political liberalism 
uh, and public reason uh, uh, thinking uh, reintegrate that with uh, uh, justice as fairness, which is how I refer to to his substantive theory of justice. Um, secondly, was a reconfiguration of the argument for the two principles of justice as fairness. Uh, something that he said he had to do in response to criticisms from Kenneth Arrow um, and others, um, uh, John Harsanyi. So this was new and uh, also new, but not as clearly flagged in the uh, in the introduction to Justice's Fairness Restatement was um, a consideration of the possibility of institutionalizing or realizing uh, justice's fairness uh, uh, in institutions. And he distinguished clearly for the first time five uh, distinct regime types, uh, laissez-faire capitalism, welfare state capitalism, one-party state socialism, property-owning democracy, and liberal democratic socialism. Those are the five. Uh, And he dismissed laissez-faire capitalism and one-party state socialism um, rather uh, uh, curtly uh, on the ground that they don't uh, 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 embody a principle of reciprocity in short and don't don't uh, take seriously uh, the fair value of of political liberty. Um, What was a surprise was his dismissal of welfare state capitalism. Rawls had just been generally understood to be an apologist for uh, uh, welfare state capitalism. And uh, it it, it ought to have, uh, I think, been more widely noted that he expressly rejects the possibility of realizing justice as fairness in a welfare state capitalist regime. Uh, that left uh, two men standing, as it were, uh, property-owning democracy and uh, liberal democratic socialism. And there he stopped. And he said, I, I, I won't go, can't go any further. You can't settle uh, uh, this alternative on one of these two alternatives uh, as a matter of first principle. You need to, to, uh, to have more information about uh, the uh, political culture, the level of, economic democ- uh, level of economic development, the geography, the resources, and so forth of a particular uh, peoples uh, in order to, to make this choice. Now, of course, what he's talking about here is the constitutional stage of the four-stage sequence that is outlined in Theory of Justice uh, uh, to, 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 uh, uh, to complete um, the uh, uh, checking of the uh, of of the eligibility of, of principles of justice. Right. So um, let me break in here and just ask. So um, a lot of so you're right that you know it, it's it's very easy to find in the the pretty extensive literature surrounding uh, theory of justice surrounding the book, uh, even from the very beginning, um, critiques from the left and critiques from the right, you know, the, the people on the left of Rawls, uh, or who see themselves on Rawls's left, uh, interpret the difference principle as a Reaganite or Thatcherite trickle down, um, 
view, uh, the people on the right, uh, or see themselves on Rawls's right, uh, interpret the difference principle, um, uh, as Nozick does, uh, often. That is requiring constant, um, state intervention and redistribution for, you know, every exchange that occurs between some particular person and Will Chamberlain. Um, so, uh, can you tell us a little bit about why uh, I take it that, that you see it as methodological reasons that Rawls wasn't more explicit uh, in his own writing um, about about some of the more institutional um, uh, issues? Now, you just hinted that, you know, the institutional questions have to come up once we lift the veil a little bit and enter this uh, this other phase of the four four stage process. Um, I take it though that Rawls um, uh, sort of um, was committed to thinking that the questions that the theory of justice um, are tr- is trying to answer um, uh, are more abstract and have to be settled before. Um, we can start talking about uh, particular economic arrangements. Is that right? Well, it's 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 sometimes um, tricky to grasp precisely uh, what Rawls uh, wanted to achieve by distinguishing what he calls ideal theory and non-ideal theory. Good. I think this leads to some of the confusion. The idea that that the choice of regime type is a matter simply for uh, a, a, a separate part of the theory that he wasn't going to attend to. I don't think that's correct. Uh, the choice among the five uh, ideal types of regime, as posed in the restatement, is, is squarely in, in, in ideal theory. Uh, and uh, there may, of course, there will be questions that have to be addressed in non-ideal theory. But as a matter of ideal theory, um, uh, the uh, three of the five can be excluded. And already, uh, this is this is this is big philosophical news. Mm. Uh, capitalism cannot realize justice as fairness. Period. Full stop. That is uh, just I don't think a matter that's that's left ambiguous after justice as fairness is a statement. It wasn't clear uh, at, at, to a reader of uh, a theory of justice, even as revised. Um, uh, so uh, this is this is a big step. So the the resources of ideal theory are equal to the task of of of, of excluding as as incapable of realizing justice and fairness three of the five regime types, which leads to the question, of course, uh, why not why not finish the job? And uh, and uh, pit what he calls property-owning democracy against liberal democratic socialism, and let us know what justice as fairness demands of us, as in terms of uh, a choice at the constitutional stage between the five uh, types that he's chosen to identify. Right. So um, maybe uh, fill in just a little bit with um, – so when we get to this constitutional stage, still within ideal theory, we are, we are able to start thinking a little bit more institutionally about how to um, manifest in the social world our principles of justice, which are chosen in the first stage. Um, I take it that at that second stage is when we start learning – 
um, not only facts about resources and and history and and culture and the geography of the territory and the rest, but also um, is that the stage at which we start learning um, uh, particular facts about human psychology? The architectonic is um, is is not entire. It's a, a bit like a an Escher drawing in a sense. <laughs> uh, l- let me put it this way. Um, we begin with the original position and its uh, thick veil of ignorance. And the four-stage sequence uh, running from original position to constitutional convention to the legislative stage to the fourth, uh, what I call administrative cum judicial phase, involves progressive uh, relaxings of uh, the, the veil or liftings of the veil. Um, there's a, a, another division of, uh, that's, that's present in theory of justice and is, is continued in, in uh, the restatement. He never abandons this. Um, that uh, we, we, he refers to these as part one and part two of the original position procedure. In part one, uh, the choosers um, have... Uh, uh, they're choosing as rational and reasonable beings that are not affected by certain what Rawls calls special psychologies, um, tendencies uh, to envy, to spite, uh, uh, unusual attitudes uh, toward risk. Not only are the choosers not affected by these special psychologies, they don't yet factor in the, the, the circumstance that the citizens for whom they are choosing are f- affected by these special psychologies. In part two of the original position procedure, uh, the choosers uh, become aware that citizens will be affected by uh, these special psychologies and that they will take an interest in the interests of others. And they may indeed uh, become uh, 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 um, excusably envious of the inequalities that are tolerated uh, by uh, the principles of justice, whatever they might be. So the, the underlying concern here throughout is to, well, there are two of them, one of them, is to make it clear that the initial derivation of the principles of justice uh, and its egalitarian, uh, 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 the, the initial uh, egalitarian structure of the original position is not a concession to uh, human propensity to envy or to, to spite. So the egalitarianism, such as it is, that you get in part one of the original position procedure can't be dismissed as simply an accommodation to the vice of envy. It's also intended to assure that the problem of distributive justice uh, can be solved in a way that renders it a matter of pure procedural justice, how uh, things fall out 
in the operation of of society as a continuing cooperative enterprise so that uh, we don't have to pay attention to who has what. We can be assured that principles of justice structure the background institutions under which we live in a way that make that distribution fair, whatever it may be. The worry that informs all of Rawls's writing is a worry about stability. Um, and we were chatting beforehand, and you, 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 you observe that part three of theory of justice, which is concerned with the development of a sense of justice, is really the most important part of, of Rawls's uh, 1971 theory. And I agree with that, even though that's the part he took back. Right. <laughs> and political liberalism, which makes it, I think, rather challenging to understand what the man's view is. <laughs> but I think uh, by looking carefully at the restatement and um, all of his works, most of which, have, many of which are now in print and available to all, one can put together an understanding of uh, of what um, uh, what the the deepest uh, motive in Rawls is, and the deepest motive is, I agree with you, is to account for um, uh, a, a sense of justice that's capable of stabilizing a well-ordered society in which there will be inequalities of wealth and income, in which there will be also a, uh, 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 a very wide uh, divergence of comprehensive diversity of comprehensive conceptions of the good. Um, so uh, the uh, the second part of the original position procedure um, asks whether uh, the strains of committing oneself to the principles chosen in the first part are going to be ones that can survive. And that's the flip side of that is, will a sense, can a sense of justice uh, arise and support itself from generation to generation in a way that will maintain general confidence in citizens that they are, as it were, uh, working off of the same page when making claims against each other? Uh, uh, in, in, the, in the political, the public political arena. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Great. So um, that's that's helpful. Um, let me ask now about sort of the, the central argument of the book, <laughs> the reticent socialist uh, uh, part. Um, so you're arguing that um, Rawls neglected to explicitly at least draw a fairly straightforward conclusion um, uh, that pretty clearly follows from what he does say about justice um, 
um, clearly does follow from justice's fairness as a conception of justice. More specifically, um, you argue that justice's fairness commits one to holding that only a certain kind of socialism, the liberal democratic kind, is capable of satisfying the demands of justice and achieving a, a, a stably just society. Now, that argument turns on um, the role that Rawls gives uh, fairly explicitly um, to the fair, to what he calls the fair value of the political liberties. Um, and in fact, that, um, uh, that idea of the, the, the fair value of the political liberties plays a pretty um, explicit role in his um, arguments against laissez-faire and welfare state capitalism in the restatement. Um, so can you tell us a little bit of both about the concern for fair value, what that means, and um, and also um, uh, how that figures into, as you understand it and reconstruct it, uh, the full argument that would get us uh, the liberal democratic socialist conclusion from Rawls? Okay. Uh, let me begin by just saying what the, the difference is between uh, Rawls's conception of property-owning dem democracy and Rawls's conception of liberal democratic socialism. Good. He's not as clear as one would like about this, but it comes down to this. Uh, Rawls believes that there are uh, certain aspects of the basic structure which can be identified as the means of production. And uh, what I call the property question he calls, I think, at one point the historic question, is uh, whether uh, uh, the means of production uh, are to be open to private ownership or whether instead the means of production are to be uh, socially owned, owned in common. Uh, by means of production, Rawls is referring to uh, what is sometimes referred to as the commanding heights of the economy. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't reach every particular tool or, or implement that one might put to productive use. So with this qualification, which I, I won't repeat, um, the property question is posed quite squarely in, in, in uh, justice's fairness or restatement. Now, a fair value comes into this, importantly. Uh, Fair value is uh, uh, assured only of the political liberties in uh, justice's fairness. Uh, it may be that uh, your freedom of occupation is worth more than mine is because you're more uh, skilled uh, or more uh, industrious. Uh, Justice's fairness does not guarantee the fair value of the liberties to generally, uh, even the first principle liberties, but it does guarantee uh, fair value of the political liberties, not just formal, but fair value, which means rough equality of political influence among those uh, similarly, similarly motivated and similarly uh, uh, endowed with uh, with uh, uh, persuasive powers, if you like. This is a uh, this is where the real egalitarian bite of uh, justice's fairness is found, as Norman Daniels was the first to point out. But as many people didn't seem to appreciate, uh, the difference principle is. Uh, uh, been uh, uh, 
central in discussions of, of Rawls in a way that obscures the the prior role, the lexically prior role of the first principle guarantee of fair value political liberties. Um, what does this uh, demand? And Rawls makes one of the more puzzling uh, uh, observations in his entire work in the theory of justice, where he says uh, that constitutional democracies don't really seem to have taken this seriously. Uh, it, which is, is a puzzler because uh, he's trying to work up a theory of justice for out of uh, the public political culture of constitutional democracies. How can you derive a principled requirement from this set of resources when uh, you're claiming that a certain guarantee of a strong egalitarian guarantee has never been taken seriously? Um, uh, Rawls is entitled to do this uh, if, if he can show us that taking everything together, that his theory is one that is persuasive and one that we can live in, that it, that it accounts for our considered judgments uh, in reflective and wide reflective equilibrium. Now, what Rawls says about the specific requirements imposed by the first principle guarantee of fair value political liberty is disappointingly scant. What he does tell us in Justice's Fairness, the restatement, uh, a restatement is that um, uh, he believes that a liberal democratic socialism and uh, a property owning democracy can guarantee, sufficiently guarantee the fair value political liberties to cultivate a sense of justice and to stabilize a well-ordered society. How is this done? One wants to know. And in the restatement and other writings, he refers to uh, a number of measures which you can divide into two categories. Um, uh, one is what insulation measures, which are uh, measures which are that are intended to insulate politics from uh, economic, uh, unequal economic power. Uh, the worry here is that there's an inherent tendency of economic advantage to translate itself into political advantage. Justice's fairness allows economic inequality, uh, but it does not allow uh, that economic inequality to degrade uh, or to destroy the fair value of political liberties. Well, what's, what's to stop it? Well, the insulation strategies uh, are, involve certain measures, uh, public financing of campaigns, uh, limitations on uh, 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 private financing, private contributions and spending on, on campaigns, Public subsidies uh, for uh, debates and 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 so on, things of that of that kind. Uh, a second type of 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 um, of reinforcement uh, involves in, uh, taxes on receipts of inheritance. That way, 
uh, economic inequalities or economic advantages, I should say, don't uh, uh, easily uh, transmit themselves from generation uh, to generation. Um, so we already, I'm, I'm sorry. So we already see then uh, the um, the way the argument we can we can sort of anticipate the way the argument against laissez-faire and welfare state capitalism is now supposed to run. Um, you can see that, um, uh, especially the laissez-faire version of capitalism, is not even going to be interested in any insulation strategy. <laughs> right. Um, and the welfare state capitalist might um, uh, might lament the role of money in politics, uh, for example, but is um, uh, might lament it, but is not going to see any political measures that would be justified in order to curb it, right? Right. Good. Right. And for, for not even trying, um, Rawls dismisses welfare state capitalism. Right. No, no, no invisible hand is, is going to is going to make it so that everyone has roughly political influence or has more political influence in virtue of inequality. There's a there's a stark disanalogy between uh, uh, the price system in the economy and the way money works in politics. Right. Uh, now, the question is, uh, then, how do we then address the property question from this perspective? Uh, if we're concerned about the corrosive effect of the economic inequalities that we will allow, we must allow, according to Rawls, uh, the, the markets are essential. Uh, and uh, they uh, they must be housed in a fair basic structure, and that's the challenge uh, for a theory of justice for a constitutional democracy. If we're faced with a choice between permitting private ownership of the means of production and not permitting it, uh, what reasons would we have from the perspective of the choosers at the constitutional convention stage for allowing private ownership of the means of production? Now, this is a question that Rawls poses, but never answers, even though if you conceive of society as a fair system of cooperation for mutual benefit, it's very hard to see how you could warrant uh, the uh, uh, private ownership of the means of production in the sense of the commanding heights of the economy. Um, to even to pose the question is almost to to answer it, although it, it, it laying it out in detail in the context of. Rawls's further refinement of the original position procedure in their statement would take me a little bit longer than we have up to go through. Right. So um, can you tell us a little bit, maybe help draw more starkly the contrast between um, the liberal democratic socialist economic order and the property-owning democracy? Well, the... Um, to do that, um, one thing that has to be uh, uh, understood is that is that Rawls um, understood socialism um, as uh, not a monolithic uh, 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 
conception, but as uh, involving, uh, uh, in addition to uh, the emphasis on common ownership of the means of production, there's also a, a, a strain of socialist thought that emphasizes uh, workplace democracy or industrial democracy. And I think that uh, Rawls uh, respected uh, those who believed that socialism involves um, doing uh, something to bring democracy into the workplace, every workplace. Um, I think that his considered view was that the property question, that is, who shall own the means of production, is, is really the, the central issue as to whether one uh, is, is opting for a socialist regime or not. There are a number of nice things we would like uh, socialism to achieve, those of us who don't think of it as, as, as a bugaboo. <laughs> um, and uh, property-owning democracy, in contrast, it's a very hard contrast to draw because unlike the other four uh, ideal types of regime Rawls sets out in the restatement, property-owning democracy has no exemplar. And moreover, the term itself has been variously used by people that are, are um, whose tendencies are very, very far from from Rawls's, insofar as viewing uh, 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 the recent history of of constitutional democracies. It was uh, uh, a term initially coined uh, in the early 20th century by a Tory politician, Noel Skelton. And it was later picked up by Margaret Thatcher. Rawls's source is James Mead, uh, uh, an Oxford and Cambridge economist, um, uh, who was a member of of Clement Attlee's uh, socialist government in the 1945 to 1951 period. And as I read Mead, Mead was not – discussing what he called the property owning democracy as an alternative to socialism at all, but as a way forward for socialists that a socialist government that had already uh, nationalized uh, uh, the means of production um, uh, in Britain. And part of what I I go over uh, uh, the uh, Rawls's uh, uh, likely exposure to uh, the uh, the British socialist uh, uh, regime, or just recently voted out British socialist re- regime during his 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 uh, his stay at Oxford in fifty two fifty three. Um, I don't think um, uh, Rawls was ever clear about property and democracy. Now there are a, n- a number of people now that are trying to work out. A conception of property owning democracy. I don't, I, I don't discuss them in detail in the book, but they're certainly worth worth uh, looking at in detail. Uh, Alan Thomas, for example, has, has published a book, uh, Republic of Equals, which works out um, uh, a view opposite to mine. He says that Rawls Rawls has to reject uh, socialism and embrace uh, property owning democracy. Uh, he's wrong about that, but. Um, uh, it's 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 uh, it's a task 
fortunately for me, it's easier to reconstruct what Rawls meant by socialism because socialism has has a history. Uh, property owning democracy uh, is is an idea uh, <laughs> and not even a, a, a well formulated idea. Um, so, so is the thought that property owning democracy would permit the social ownership of the means of productions at the commanding heights of the economy, but doesn't require it as socialism, uh, the liberal democratic form would? Correct. Ah, got it. So, so, so the argument then is that if, the, if, if what's doing the work in the Rawlsian argument is the fair value of the political liberties, and if we've got good reasons, as you think we do, for um, uh, claiming that the fair value of the political liberties can be stably secured only when um, the means of production at the commanding heights of the economic system are collectively owned, then we get the argument that um, uh, property-owning democracy um, is not up to the task of securing in a stable way social justice and only liberal democratic socialism is. Now, that slightly overstates okay. what, what's needed here. Uh, in the Constitutional Convention, uh, if we're pairwise comparing uh, property-owned democracy and socialism, uh, we make a, a judgment. Um, we don't have to say that uh, one of them can't possibly do the job. What we ask is, is one of them better at this? Is yeah. one of them, from all that we can see, uh, better? Would we chance the the take a chance with the um, the less likely candidate, uh, if we are uh, uh, satisfied that there's a guaranteeable level that's fully satisfactory under both. Uh, and I think the answer from from all that uh, Rawls has said uh, in, uh, in his vast body of work is that we wouldn't take that chance. Um, the, uh, the, and, and Rawls, at several points, it refers to the destabilizing tendencies that might exist in a property-owning democracy where public and private ownership, the question as between them is always in play, as it were. Right. Uh, those who are winners, those who are economically better off, uh, might be expected to um, look at the uh, uh, the means of production is something they'd like to own too. Uh, any of us who have played Monopoly as kids, <laughs> the board game, uh, know how, how nice that waterworks looks. What a nice pair it would go with our electric company. Um, but what does it say? What, what, what message do we send to each other as citizens uh, when we flog off the public utility? When we uh, privatize, um, for example, uh, the penitentiaries, right. Right. Uh, uh, the post office, and so forth. Um, I think Rawls would have been impressed by, um, uh, by the communicative uh, disvalue of privatization. What would be gained then by um, uh, uh, allowing that as an option? Um, it might have some incentive effects. I mean, some people might conceivably uh, work harder if they thought, well, gee, I can buy the electric company. Uh, 
I've got all the hotels I want. <laughs> we have that too. Um, uh, the, the task Rawls set himself, uh, very early on, I think very, I think shortly after his experience in the Second World War was to, um, to tame the claims of utility to make, to make room for justice. And this is an instance in which I think Rawls very definitely uh, was conscious in some, in, to some degree that he'd set the table for a powerful argument for socialism that he wasn't sure maybe we were ready for. So is that good? So that's a, a nice segue to the um, uh to the big question, I think that um, your your book uh, uh, leads the reader to, and then uh, tries to dis- you know, then discusses in the, the final two chapters. Um, so, if the if the argument from justice justice is fairness, including the, the fair value of the political liberties uh, commitment, um, is pretty straightforward, um, to at least the the pairwise comparison between property owning democracy and liberal democratic socialism. And if, um, as I, I think you make a splendid case, uh, a very per- persuasive case in the book, for thinking that the considerations that drove um, drove Rawls's work uh, um, uh, and his condemnation of, of the capitalist systems um, should settle the question between property-owning democracy and liberal democratic socialism in favor of the liberal democratic socialist order, if all of that works out, and you've made a good case that it that it does. Um, why, why was he reticent? Why not, why not, um, just explicitly say that he's a, why didn't he just say he was a socialist? <laughs> well, that, that's, that's a very, that's something I've really struggled with is, um, uh, one, one way of understanding that reticence is to consider the, Personal characteristics of the man himself, as as reported by um, any number of contemporaries. Um, uh, in uh, Rawls's one of Rawls's um, more memoir-like writings, he um, discusses his uh, friendship, or uh, as it were, uh, apprenticeship. <laughs> uh, um, uh, at at the at the at at the at the knee of of of, of Burton Draben, uh, colleague, um, was actually I think younger than, than Rawls. Um, uh, Draben um, uh, had a tremendous influence on on Rawls, especially uh, when when Rawls was taking his his political turn. Although the political turn in uh, political liberalism, the the Dewey lectures and so forth. Seems to have been entirely self-motivated, and which, re- in fact, reinforces your your view that part three of theory of justice is really the most important part. He's he's thinking mostly about that, which would explain why he made that turn while the discussion was about other things: the original position, veil of ignorance, difference principle, and so forth. Um, Draben on. Uh, used to pick at Rawls by Rawls's account about not being direct, uh, not being uh, straightforward 
being uh, uh, muffled uh, in his in his writing as an expression. Um, so there's there's that aspect of it. Um, there's there's the aspect of of, of Rawls's uh, I think in any philosopher's uh, uh, aversion to to labels and party identification. Um, uh, uh, Rawls's um, uh, colleague uh, Hilary Putnam um, uh, uh, ignored that <laughs> during <laughs> during the uh, during the sixties and very early seventies and allied himself with the Maoist Progressive Labor Party, um, um, which was something of a scandal in, in philosophical circles. I mean, this was, this was, um, uh, there was something, uh, uh, about it that, um, um, I remember Paul Grice, uh, at, at Berkeley, uh, commenting on, on, uh, poor Hillary Putnam, as though he completely lost his mind. And, and, and Putnam was, was shortly to, uh, disavow progressive labor. And, well, um, the spectacle <laughs> of, of having to climb down out of an ideological tree in that way so visibly, uh, I'm sure impressed itself um, <laughs> on Walz's mind. Um, one thing that that uh, I don't think is widely appreciated is the degree to which Rawls was a Southerner. Um, he's from Baltimore, Maryland, and, and that was that's below the Mason-Dixon line. The Mason-Dixon line runs between Maryland and Pennsylvania, and uh, he he a number of references in his writings to um, uh, his his sort of well, at least one that, that stands out, uh, uh, thinking of himself as a Princeton man. Well, Princeton uh, was long and is perhaps even now thought of as as the as the northernmost outpost of the southern gentleman. I suppose that's case. <laughs> and Rawls identified himself as a Princeton man uh, who could sort of chuckle at uh, the Yankee pretensions of 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 Harvard. Um, although he was uh, very much. Uh, 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 Indebted to to Harvard as an environment for his philosophical development, so long as well as as Oxford and Cornell and, and MIT and so forth. He um, that's where he wound up and spent uh, uh, well uh, thirty years or so of his of his of his academic life. So um, uh, his being a colleague of others. Uh, may have had an influence as well. I don't think he was he was cowed uh, 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 in any way. I don't think he was um, uh, afraid of uh, being ostracized uh, or uh, dismissed. But he certainly notes in his discussions of Mill, for example, right. um, uh, and of Hobbes, that sometimes you cut yourself off. Uh, from uh, colleagues you would not like to be cut off from because you take uh, a certain stand or are suspected of, of taking a certain stand. So it, the, the question is, what what is to be gained uh, uh, um, by uh, uh, embracing a label? And Rawls was quite clearly dismayed 
that he had found himself classified as a welfare state capitalist, an apologist for the status quo. And he um, uh, uh, made it, I think, quite plain uh, in uh, in the restatement as as well as some of his letters that that was definitely not his view. And that uh, uh, the most important uh, uh, feature of, uh, of uh, the sense of justice is a commitment to a principle of reciprocity. We're in this together. I don't benefit at your expense. And that is simply not uh, something that a welfare state capitalist or any capitalist society um, uh, uh, can cultivate. Uh, in an individual, except by ideological deception, <laughs> right? Except, you know, there is a as you're as you're spelling out some of the um, the, the, the lesson that he might have learned more or less indirectly from the example of Hillary Putnam. Um, I, you know, the, there is a story to be told, I suppose, um, about uh, the configuration of the the Harvard department at that time, because. Um, you know, Quine, I'm told, was a real conservative <laughs> politically. Yes, yes. Um, and so I wonder if there wasn't sort of, um, uh, you know, even more to that, that thought about um, Mill and, and Hobbes um, uh, that you just cited, that um, uh, in order to get along in a way. That's a good question, Bob. Um, Rawls was... was uh, took over as chair of the department uh, upon his return uh, from the, uh, from the uh, Stanford Humanities Institute, where he finished uh, Theory of Justice. And um, I think that he may have, um, and he was getting uh, to be very close to, to Burton Draben, right. um, uh, who had uh, some administrative responsibilities as well. And I think that may be another another part of it is that is that as department chair, he wasn't just, you know, a philosopher who was uh, uh, able to uh, just ignore uh, perceptions of uh, that he he might create about the department itself. And certainly uh, you're right about you're right about Quine. Um, I don't think Nozick would have minded at all. But um, uh, uh Nozick was never, as far as I know, chair of the department. Um, uh, and and uh, Nozick's background is rather rather different than Rawls's uh, in a number of ways. So personality figures into this. Uh, uh, I, there, there was one um, interesting uh, point along the way that you can see in political liberalism that uh, uh, I think that it's in the preface to the, uh, to the paperback edition in which he uh, acknowledges um, Rodney Pepper's uh, book in which Rodney Pepper proposes uh, uh, an alternative set of principles of justice. Uh, one of which uh, sort of in an intermediate position in Pepper's list would have um, uh, guaranteed a right to workplace democracy. Nothing about the means of production, but about workplace democracy. Mm. 
And Rawls says, um, you know, I, I just don't think that that belongs there. Right. Uh, he doesn't say that doesn't belong anywhere. He says it doesn't, it doesn't belong there. It's not, it, it, it can't be a, a, one of the principles of justice. It might be a requirement of the principles of justice, as I read what Rawls is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's not what, what Pepper proposed wasn't um, socialism in the core focal sense of social ownership of the means of production. Uh, as far as workplace democracy goes, uh, I think Rawls was um, uh, skeptical about that as a general prescription for democratizing uh, society. Uh, the fair value of political liberties, which is so important to Rawls, was never translated into a requirement of, uh, of, of democracy, even formal political equality within uh, uh, the institutions of civil society, business institutions, churches, um, universities, and so forth. Right. So, um, Bill, we're we're at the end of our our, our time. It's been it's been really great uh, talking to you about your fabulous book. Um, last question. Uh, so um, now that we've um, uh, now that we know that um, America's most influential political philosopher of the last century um, was in fact a socialist, um, what's next for you? What, what what's what's the next project? Well, um, I'm. Several. Uh, one is is to sort of make sure there aren't any loose ends <laughs> left. Uh, the book I uh, I've learned some more about Rawls since the book was finished that uh, reinforce my account of him. Um, I did some research uh, um, at at uh, the Widener Library at Harvard and looked at some of his. Uh, lecture notes and uh, have discovered some lectures on democracy in which he engages uh, James Madison. Huh. Uh, and that's, I think, philosophical news because here you have America's preeminent political philosopher um, uh, engaging one-sidedly, of course, because Madison's long dead, mm-hmm. um, uh, America's founding political theorist, and his criticisms of 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 um, of Madison are 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 interesting to read. Uh, um, I'm also trying to um, to work out uh, uh, some of the implications of Rawls's view for uh, those of us uh, who live in non-ideal circumstances. Uh, what kinds of individual duties? Uh, do we have uh, uh, here and now uh, uh, what ought we to do uh, is is the question I'm, why, by what ought we to do I mean in the, in the, in the uh, distributed sense of what I what ought I to do now given that um, uh, 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 the basic structure of my society is is unjust um, and and that uh, is is uh, is uh, difficult a difficult question that uh, may take a while to work work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, 
I'm 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 really intrigued by the 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 Rawls uh, lectures on Madison. Um, but uh, the the project, uh, the more non-ideal theory um, uh, project that you describe sounds uh, very exciting, and I'll keep an eye out for that. Um, but for now, Bill, I just want to thank you for your time today, and thank you for appearing on New Books in Philosophy. Well, I thank you, Bob, and thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it. Sure, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today for our discussion of William Edmondson's uh, book. It's titled John Rawls, Reticent Socialist, and it's published now in paperback uh, by Cambridge University Press. Bye for now. <laughs>